0: Please turn me with me in your Bibles to the book of Second Thessalonians. We're going to be looking actually at verses three through 12 here this morning. Last week as we moved into Second Thessalonians, we began in this opening chapter looking at the eternal picture, the eternal realities that are fixed in this life, the eternal destiny, the eternal shoreline that each and every one of us is moving towards. But Paul describes that here in this opening chapter, not in an end of itself. But as a background for another point that he is making, and that's what we're going to focus on here this morning. So follow along with me as I read verses 3 through 12 of Second Thessalonians. Sorry, ignore that first slide. Here we go. Second Thessalonians 3 through 12. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecution and the afflictions that you are adoring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and a great relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at. Among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now here's what we're focusing on in the upcoming slides. Why is it that Paul is giving this description of these eternal destinies? Verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Holy Spirit, descend upon us, we pray. Father, open your word, that we might understand it, or that you would impress Indelibly upon our hearts, this a picture of the eternal realities and the implications that that must have on us today. Would you do that for the honor of your name and for the glory of your people, we pray. Amen. Florence Chadwick was a long-distance swimmer. She set multiple records, including being the first woman to swim both ways across the English Channel. And in 1952, she attempted to swim the 26 miles from Catalina Island off the coast of California to the the California shoreline. As she set off on this particular day to do this feat, to be the first woman to do this, she was flanked by two small boats that provided uh, encouragement to her, were there to ward off sharks that would come after her, and also to help her if she grew tired. As she swam, she began to grow tired And after 15 hours of swimming, a thick fog set in, a fog that was so thick that it was reported that she couldn't even see the support boats that were right next to her. And as the fog set in, she began to doubt her ability about whether or not she was actually going to make it to the shoreline. She told her mother that she didn't think she was going to make it, and her mother was in one of the support boats but her mother and her coach kept telling her, the shoreline's not that far away. Just keep on swimming. You can do this. And so she swam for another hour, and after another hour, she stopped. And she asked to be pulled out of the water, unable to continue any further, and unable to see the shoreline because of the dense fog. As she was pulled into the boats, they then zipped to shore and found out that she had swum, that she swam, whatever it is, that she had been in the water using her arms and legs for over 25 and a half miles. And she was just a little bit over a half a mile away from the shoreline when she was pulled out. In her news conference the next day, she said, I'm not going to make excuses for what happened. I was the one who asked to be pulled out. But I really think that if I could have seen the shore... I think I would have made it. As we turn to this passage here, the Apostle Paul and the Word of God is exhorting us to live lives with our eyes fixed on the eternal shoreline. That in the midst of the waves, in the midst of the fog that surrounds us, that we would keep our eyes fixed fixed on the mental image and the mental picture of the eternal shoreline. And Paul opens here, the book of 2 Thessalonians in the first chapter, describing this eternal shoreline, giving these details about the glory of heaven and the terrors of hell. And Paul provides these details because it is what drove and guided and inspired and motivated his prayers for the church and his prayers for himself, and it should do so for us as well. And so here this morning we're going to learn from Paul's example of his prayer for the church in Thessalonica. His example that instructs us of what we also should be praying for. And in particular, I'm going to focus on four things that we should be praying for here this morning. Number one is that with our eye fixed on the eternal shore, pray that God would make you worthy of his call. Paul begins here by saying, "To this end we always pray for you that God would make you worthy of his calling and that he may fulfill every resolve for good work and every work of faith by his power. But to this end we pray for you that God would make you worthy of his calling. Now to be clear, Paul is not praying that somehow these people would become worthy so that God would actually call them. Our own experience affirms to us, and scripture is quite clear, that there is no possibility of us ever ...being worthy enough for God. We are too broken, too sinful, too corrupted, too selfish. But the story of Scripture also tells us that what God has done... ...is that he has been calling a people to himself. That he has been calling his people to himself. And if you are a Christian, that if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... ...your boss and your master, the one who is your rescuer... ...then you have been called. And if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian and you hear and you sense God's voice working in you, drawing you to himself, you wanting to know more, it is because God is calling you to himself. And Paul's longing for the people of God, for those who already have been called by God. His point is this, since you have been called, live up to that calling. Grow up into Christian maturity. That if you are a child of the King Jesus then live your life and act and live as a child of the king. Don't live your life and act as an orphan pauper because that is not who you are. And so therefore, become and live as who you are. And so Paul's longing is for the church in Thessalonica and for Christians and for us too, that we would become who we are, that we would grow up into what God has already done, that we would be made worthy of his calling. But here in this passage, this is Paul's prayer for the Christians. And his prayer is this, his, such a prayer is tantamount, as D.A. Carson writes, is tantamount to asking that God will so work in their lives, that God will so make them worthy, that ultimately he will count them as worthy. That God has so changed them. And change their life that God looks at them and says, that is one who is actually worthy of my kingdom. Because God has so worked in changing their lives, in changing who they are, that they have become who God has made them to be. And Paul is praying with that eye on the eternal sure that God would make them worthy of their calling. And I just ask you, is that what you pray for? Is that what you most pray for? If someone listened to your prayers for yourself, for your children, for this church, is that what you most pray for? I think if we listen to our prayers, would it not instead be the things that we most pray for is that we would pass the next exam, that we pray for a pain-free life, that we would get somewhere safely, that we would not have any hassles, that life would have less stress, that we would be happy, that our kids would be happy, and that our kids would be successful? Is not the, that the driving thing that most of us pray for? Instead of praying that we would live lives worthy of being a Christian. That everything about us would be worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. You know, particularly at this time of year, as graduations, people traveling, families getting together over the course of the summer, how often parents ask one another, hey, how are your kids doing? How are your grown kids doing? How often friends ask each other, how are you doing? How's your life going? And, you know, so often the responses are like this, oh, you know, doing pretty well. I just got into grad school, got a successful job. Oh, you know, my, my, my son was the, the youngest person to make rank in his whole squadron. You know, it's been, a, it's been a good summer. You know, my kids are doing well. They're prospering. They're achieving their life goals. And you say, okay, well, how are they doing spiritually? Oh, well, you know, they're, they're not really walking with the Lord. But, you know, hopefully, well, hopefully one day that, that, will, that will happen. You know. And I understand that in the course of conversation, some people just as a matter of privacy or not wanting to air family laundry, you know, answer the questions that way. Understood. But for many people they answer that way because their priorities in life are messed up. And a different example, just in the contrast, I have talked with not a few people who are interested in going into Christian ministry, into full-time vocational ministry, whose evangelical parents, whose parents are leaders in churches, have said to them, well, you know, I know you want to go into ministry, but, you know, there are other ways to serve the Lord. Why don't you find a job that's going to make money and provide for your family? Or job people that have said, you know, you, you want to do this, but, you know, you're a really smart and capable person. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you use those gifts in a way that, you know, really uses them? Why wouldn't you do that? And for ourselves and for our kids and for our friends, become delighted over the material prosperity and not too concerned about the spiritual indifference to God and whether our lives are actually worthy of God and our lives are being lived in response to God's grace and being made worthy. D.A. Carson hits it rightly when he says, how will these values or these prayers, how will these values appear 30 years or 40 billion years from now, in eternity. From eternity's perspective, what should be the primary thing we pray for our children, for ourselves, and for our fellow believers? And we see it in the Apostle Paul, to pray with an eye fixed on that eternal shore that God would make us and others, that he would make us worthy of the calling that he has put upon us. Second item of prayer here in this passage is with an eye fixed on the eternal shore to pray for God to fulfill endeavors of faith, of faith. Verse 11, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. Now, Paul, in other places, for example, in Philippians, has talked about the desires and things that God does in you. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is God who gives you these desires to do these things. But what Paul identifies here is that these are our desires, that God would fulfill our resolve, the actions prompted by our faith. And, of course, that's consistent with what he says in Philippians chapter 2. But he's saying, pray that God might empower us in our resolve in every work of faith. Now, of course, he qualifies it there. It's not that God would fulfill every resolve that you have in your life, but every resolve of faith that is prompted by faith that springs forth from faith in your life. Paul, Paul's expectation is that Christians would so be transformed through their conversion, through the gospel continuing to be at work in them, that they would actually have new desires. That they would actually have good deeds and good works prompted by their faith rising up within them. Things that might go something like this. You know what? I I wonder how I can show love to that curmudgeon that lives two doors down or in the cubicle next to me. You know, I wonder how I wonder how God could actually you know, I'd really like to see. I I don't know. I I wonder how God would actually work to reconcile the bitterness and anger in my marriage that has plagued it for decades. I I wonder what I wonder how God might actually use me to help these kids in my neighborhood who I see all the time and they drive me nuts because they come into my yard and I wonder how God might actually use me. I wonder how I wonder how God could actually use my prayers to, to pray for my neighbor. I, I think I'm going to start praying, for my, start praying for my neighbors. Paul's expectation is that Christians, because of God's spirit and his grace working in them, that they will develop such God-given purposes. That they will give them, develop such God-given works. But Paul knows that for these things to be brought into fruition, for these things to be fulfilled, God has to do it. He knows that nothing's going to happen unless God makes it to happen. So he says with that eye on eternal shore to pray for God to fulfill the endeavors of faith and to pray for it because unless God empowers it, unless God brings these good desires and purposes to fruition, unless God does that, these endeavors, these works of faith will be empty and will be fruitless and will be shriveled and will be nothing. And so he says, "Pray for God, encourages us to pray that God to fulfill these endeavors of faith. Third item to pray for, with an eye clearly fixed on the eternal shore, to pray for the glorification of Jesus Christ. He ends, that God may fulfill that God our God may make you worthy of His calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of, his, of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, that Christ would be glorified through all these things. Paul wants Christians to be counted worthy. He wants their lives to so demonstrate Christ and manifest Christ and show Christ that they would be counted worthy. He wants their prayers of faith to be answered, their good endeavors, their good initiatives to be fulfilled. But Paul knows that these things are not the ultimate. They are not the end goal. But these things are in part... And the ultimate goal is so that through these things that Jesus Christ would be glorified as a result of Christians growing in maturity and the faithfulness of believers being lived out in every sphere of their life. But how often we take Christ's glory for our own? Carson, again, the Christian's whole desire at its best and highest is that Jesus Christ be praised. It is always a wretched bastardization of our goals when we want to win glory for ourselves instead of for him. When we arrange flowers in the church or serve as an usher or preach a sermon, when we visit the sick or run a youth group or attend prayer meetings, when we do any of these things and more with a secret desire that we might be praised for our godliness and service, we have corrupted the salvation that we enjoy. And if we lose sight of that eternal shore, if we lose sight of Christ's glory, instantaneously we, repli- we, re- we replace that with a quest for our own, apart from Christ. And Paul, wanting to see lives live for him, prayers answered, he is tying it in so that the goal, that Jesus Christ would be glorified. But there is something more startling that Paul is praying for here. And the thing that is more startling is that Paul actually prays, Again, with an eye fixed on the eternal shore, he actually prays that Jesus Christ would glorify Christians. Paul prays for Christians to be glorified. Look what he says in this verse. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him. That we say that God be glorified. He's also saying, may God glorify you. May God gl- bring glory into your life. You know, for him to be glorified, for Jesus to be glorified, you know, means that he would be honored and recognized and praised and glorified. Well, what on earth does this mean that God, that Jesus, would glorify us? And in fact, that we're even to pray for our own glorification, and the glorification of, 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 of family members and of glorification of other Christians. I mean, what's going on here? After having just made, here in this passage and also in others, having just made the glory of Jesus Christ pivotal, is Paul now softening or reversing that? Is he saying that, ah, well, you know, you you can get a little bit too if you work hard enough. I mean, certainly the Apostle Paul is aware of Isaiah 42, where God says, I am the Lord that is my name, my glory, I give to no other. But what Paul is tapping into here in this passage is that it is good and right for there to be aspects, and there are indeed aspects of God's glory, where it is entirely right for Christians to talk about and to pray for and to ask God to give the glorification of Christians. It's not something that we talk about too often. Indeed, in the story of Scripture, you can refer to this as the story of glory. You might You know, when it comes to the biblical storyline, you're probably more familiar with the storyline of grace. which The storyline of grace goes something like this, that God created a perfect world, yet each one of us turned away from God and broke God's law. But God sent Jesus Christ into this world to die on the cross. And on the cross there, he paid the penalty for our debts, for the crimes that we have committed against him, for breaking God's law. He took the punishment that we deserve. He rose from the grave that we might have new life. And through the work on on the cross, there is this double transaction where all of our wrongs are nailed to the cross of Christ. And everything that is good, beautiful, and excellent about Jesus is credited to our account. And we get to live in that now and also for all eternity, wholly out of the grace of God. And that is absolutely true. It is life-changing, and it will change you every day. And hallelujah for that. But there are several other biblical storylines that we don't pay as much attention to. And one of those is the story of glory. And the story of glory is this, is that God created mankind. When he created mankind, he, he created them in glory and created people in glory. Indeed, When he created them, as Psalm 8 says, it describes it this way What is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That there is a glory bestowed upon humans. You can understand glory as that deep soul satisfaction, the fullness of being who all who God made you to be, a life lived with purpose. Yes, also a life of renown, a life where you are truly human and being all that God made you to be. And God says, when I created this world, I bestowed you with glory. But what happens after that is that each one of us Instead of seeking glory from God, turned away and sought to seek it in and of ourselves. Turned away from God and there was a fall from glory. And Romans 3.23 puts it this way, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the glory with which man was created and designed in which to live. Man has fallen short of that. And as such, the glory that God had bestowed that would give purpose, meaning dignity, all of that falls away. And so the result is after this fall from glory, people have lived their lives searching for it. And you know this experientially. You see it in your workplace. You see it wherever you are, of people looking for glory, people seeking glory, people searching for it, people seeking to move up, people seeking, you know, on college campuses, who's the biggest partier, finding the glory in who can be the biggest partier. The people who are, on, who, who are you know, in workplaces, finding the glory in their work, finding the glory in, you know, Third Wire OK., Every time. That's my record. See my glory. You see it in people's marriages where one spouse tries to take a counterfeit glory from the other just so that both of them know that one's up here and the other person's down here. You see it in kids as they all try to rank themselves so that they know where the pecking order is so everybody knows where everybody else stands as we're all seeking after these glories, these counterfeit glories that in the end leave us empty, filled with boredom, filled with meaninglessness. For many people, it makes you feel used because you gave yourself to another person, hoping that they would satisfy you, and you're just feeling empty and used at the end of it. And Paul identifies it in Romans 1.22 is this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What's Paul identifying here is that instead of seeking glory from God... Instead of pursuing glory in God and from God and through God's, mankind has turned and is seeking it in everything else in the created order but God. And as a result, they have become, what it says here, they have become fools, though they are claiming to be wise. But here is the hope of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ has come to bring and to bring about not just a restoration, but a transformation into full glory. Indeed, in Colossians 1.27, Paul writes, To them, that is, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? The mystery is this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That what is your hope of glory for you? The hope of glory in your life that will give you this soul satisfaction, that will fill your life with meaning and purpose. What is it? It is a glory that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Of confessing to him Have you pursued after all these other counterfeit glories, and they have left you empty, and you have fallen down in utter worship of everything else that has used you, and you have used it, and you are left empty. But you turn to Jesus Christ and to see that not only does he forgive your sins and give you new life abundant, but he gives you a new glory. So that you don't have to live your life trying to be the biggest and the baddest and the best, and however you define that, whatever sphere that you are. But that your glory is bound up in who you are in Jesus Christ. A glory that will continue, indeed, yes, for all eternity. But let me state the difference between our glory, the glory ascribed to God, and the glory that God gives to us. Is that when we ascribe, when we glorify God, when we give glory to God, we are... Ascribing to him that which is his already, that which he is due, it doesn't change him at all. But when God glorifies us, it changes us. It makes us more like him, where we become strengthened and empowered to show Christ-like characteristics that we would not otherwise display that we would not otherwise be shown or manifested in our lives. And here's a picture of what that glory looks like. That glory is not like a rotten fence that gets whitewashed, that looks all shiny and new but ultimately is rotten. The glory that God works in his people is not like a mirror that simply passively reflects it back to God, though there is a radiance that gets reflected back to God. But it's not simply that is that the glory, the way that God's glory works in and through his people is more like the filament of a light bulb. That you take something that is this thin little brittle wire, this thin little wire, and yet when electricity passes through it, it is transformed into something that is greater than itself. It is more brilliant than it was before, more brilliant than it could be on its own. More stunning, and in so doing, what it also shows is it also highlights the wonder of electricity at the same time, does it not? And thereby, this brittle little piece of wire is transformed into something that is illuminating and gives light and shines it forth. The glory of Christ, of what God is doing, is more like the filament than like anything else. That God is at work in us, not simply to restore the brokenness, but to transform us, as Paul says, from glory into glory. So that through him, our life would radiate with the glory of God. And yes, that light bulb shows forth a light. And as that is done, there is only one source that that comes from, in us. And it is Jesus Christ. And so as God glorifies his people in Christ, what happens is that yes, there is a glory that they receive, that we experience, but what does that glory do? It just shows the wonders of Jesus Christ and leads to a greater glory back to him. And so given this connection here, what Paul prays, and we are encouraged to pray, with this eye fixed on eternity, praying that Jesus Christ would be glorified in us, and also that we would be glorified in him, and radiate throughout this entire place and this entire community with the eye fixed on the eternal shoreline. It was about two months later that Florence Chadwick set out to try again to to cross the Catalina Straits. Again, after about 15 hours, a thick fog set in. And as the thick fog set in she also could not see the support vessels that were around her and could not see the shoreline but as she pressed on and continued swimming she became not only the first woman not only the first woman to cross the Catalina strait but she beat the men's record by 2 hours and she said that what kept her going In the second attempt was that with each stroke, she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind while she swam. And that's what propelled her forward. And the Apostle Paul has laid out here in chapter 1 this picture of the eternal destinies, of the glories of heaven and the terrors of hell, which are fixed in this life. And he does so, so that we would pray That we would pray that God would make us worthy of his calling. That we would pray that God would fulfill every endeavor of faith so that Jesus Christ would be glorified in us and us in him. And it is a calling for us that we would pray with our eyes fixed on the eternal shore. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father we come before you and confess to you how easy it is for us and our lives to get swallowed up by the thick fog around us. Lord, that all we can see is our present circumstances. All we can see is our present struggle. All we can see is the next wave that is coming at us, and it feels sometimes like we're drowning. It feels sometimes like we cannot go any further. But, Father, by your grace and the working of your Spirit, would you impress upon us the the eternal shorelines of the glory of heaven, fellowship with you unending, unashamed, unbroken, and the eternal reality of eternal punishment apart from you. Father, would you impress that image upon our minds that we would live here in this present moment with that mental image, and so, Lord, we will be pressed on to pray and live in light of these eternal realities. And it is for the glory of your name and also the glory of your people that we pray. Amen.